Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Um, my name is Frank Marlowe. I have the pleasure of serving as the Dean of Academics here at IWP. Um, those of you who don't know IWP, we are an independent graduate school of national security and statecraft. We offer five master's degrees, 18 uh, graduate certificates, we have a doctoral program, uh, and so if you are interested in taking classes here, uh, please feel free to come up and see me, see anyone else on the staff, and we'll be happy to give you more information. Um, I'd like to welcome you all today. This is the first uh, lecture of the, the new semester, and we could not start off with a better uh, speaker than Mr. Chris Costa. Uh, Mr. Costa served as, I should say, Colonel Costa. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't use that. Uh, he served as the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council, where he was responsible for coordinating counterterrorism policy and strategy, as well as U.S. hostage recovery activities. He has 34 years of national security experience and a well-documented success in strategy, policy, special operations, counterintelligence, and human intelligence. I don't know how he did that in 34 years. Uh, it's impressive. Uh, he has deployed on multiple contingencies uh, to include combat, combat operations in Panama, Afghanistan, and, and Iraq. His uh, last assignment with the U.S. Special Operations Command was as program director in the operations directorate. Um, prior to that, he served as a Department of Navy civilian at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group uh, with the U.S. Navy SEALs and is also a senior <coughs> adjunct instructor with Norwich University's, Norwich University's Bachelor of Science in Strategic Studies and Defense Analysis. He has a MA in Strategic Intelligence from American Military University, an MA in National Security and Strategic Studies from the Naval War College, and a BA from Norwich University. His military awards and decorations include the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and two Bronze Stars. In May 2013, Colonel Costa was, was inducted into uh, U.S. SOCOM's Commando Hall of Fame which is a tremendous honor for extraordinary and enduring service to Special Operations Forces. Most recently, Colonel Costa joined the International Spy Museum as the Executive Director, where he will play a leading role in building up the extraordinary success of that institution. If you haven't been there, it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, attraction. And he speaks uh, on current counterterrorism and intelligence issues. So please help me out. Uh, welcome, Colonel Chris Costa. So good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this uh, kind of gloomy day, right? Um, what I would like to do this afternoon, that was a great introduction. I appreciate it. I want to reinforce that uh, it is a privilege and an honor for me to talk about counterterrorism, my experience not just at the White House, but built on, on the career that uh, you just heard about. A lot of learning, a lot of scar tissues over those years, and I'm going to share sort of our optic 
of what counterterrorism looked like from Inauguration Day in 2017 in the Trump administration to the present day. Where we're going, and that's my analysis based on watching this, based on uh, studying and working at the administration, working on counterterrorism issues. But I really want to spend about 30 minutes or so. I want to run through the slides, but I'm not going to be constrained by those slides. Don't focus too much on the words. Focus on what I what I say, not what's on the slide, because I really want to get through them so we can get to the heart of the matter, which is really your questions and answers. So again, it's a privilege to be here. This is my agenda. What I would like to do is uh, touch on each one of these points. I'll let you take a look at that for a second. And again, we'll spend about 30 minutes and then we'll go into questions and answers. It always varies, of course, based on your questions, how far, how deep we go in a particular subject area. All right, so if that didn't wake you up, I don't know what would, right? <laughs> so uh, before I get in trouble for those slides, I will remind you that this was actually the metaphor in the 1990s Right, we had just we had just thought we won the Cold War, and we were now in this transition from the 1980s, the Cold War, to whatever Bosnia, whatever new states emerging was. We were trying to get our arms around that. The army had a slide, and they said this was the world we were deal, de dealing with. Right, it was a bipolar world. We understood it. It was the Soviets and the United States. And shortly thereafter, the G2 of the Army, he uh, added an additional slide, and it was a soccer team. You've all heard it. I'm not going to show you a picture of a, a soccer team, but that was the world we were trying to reconcile. And then, of course, 9-11. And it sounds almost cliche to say that changed everything, right? But my career, because I had served during the Cold War, like many of us here, and because I was an intelligence officer, I would underscore that that gave me an advantage in the administration. And we can talk about that a little bit because it ties not only into the spy museum, but it really ties into the intelligence community today. And it's germane to what you see breaking out in the news every day about our community. In short, I was well served by spending a lot of time overseas as an intelligence officer first and then ending up growing up with some a lot of lessons learned, and then going to the White House as a relatively senior guy, going to the National Security Council, right from Tampa, Florida, Special Operations Command, to all of a sudden becoming the Special Assistant to the President for Counterterrorism. We can talk about that as well, you know, what that journey was like. But it was a competitive advantage. So, a bit of a scene setter. Consider this, if you will, the idea that Throughout the 2000s, the mid-2000s, we fought a war in Iraq. Um, you, you understand and you're watching the situation in Iraq. We can come back to that as well. But we fought in Afghanistan. We still fight in Afghanistan. In fact, we lost two troops there, sadly, this past week. We also lost some service members and some civilians in Kenya, I think, two weeks ago. It's hard to keep track, right? But we have a completely disrupted landscape from the Maghreb all the way to the Philippines. That is what I inherited on Inauguration Day. And I want you to know there was a staying arc of continuity between administrations. So whatever you see, disabuse yourself of the notion that we, do it, we did it a lot better on, on 
my first day in 2017. I'm talking about counterterrorism. There's a continuity that you would expect. And it started a bit before 9-11. Remember Richard Clark? Remember the blinking lights? Richard Clark was out there. He was very um, media savvy, or maybe not media savvy, but certainly he was out there in front of the media. And he has certainly published some books, and he's been out in the speaking circuit for some time. You don't see much of Mr. Clark, but he would have been my predecessor. Several, several uh, principles removed. Um, so what I found was a completely disrupted landscape, as I mentioned. It was a post-Bin Laden world. Reflect back after Bin Laden was killed during the Obama administration. Wasn't there a cautious optimism at the time? And then slowly that abated, and what did we have? But in my view, not a political comment, but a precipitous withdrawal from Iraq. And then we had ISIS fill the gaps, right? And we watched the birth of ISIS, we watched it take hold. So my bottom line takeaway in the metaphor I used, I would like to share with you. It's as imperfect as it is. When I was with the ambassador, Ambassador Freeman in Israel, we flew up to Golan, the Golan Heights. And I stood on the Golan Heights and I looked out into the valley where, where Syria was just below us. And I realized that is the metaphor we should be operating with now. The idea that in that space, in Syria, as I was standing there, what was playing out had significant import in the counterterrorism space. What am I talking about? Let's just talk about the actors that were vying for influence in the mix of a counterterrorism operation. Iranians seeking influence in the space. Hezbollah, terrorists, but almost a proto-state operating in that space. We had Russians, Turks, U.S. military forces fighting ISIS with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which was a mix of Kurds and Arabs, mostly <coughs> Kurds, operating, Kurd, Kurds, I apologize, operating against ISIS. And did I mention we had Iranian proxies, we had militia groups all operating in that space, vying for influence, but also fighting our adversaries. And did I mention ISIS? Because that's what we were aligned against. This was a bit of a gray zone. We were back to the, to the soccer field. And if you want to know what gray zone is, in my humble explanation, it's simply put, it's vying for influence in this space. It's short of war. General Votel had written a lot about that, and before he retired, we talked, and I really congratulated him in helping me, helping me, which is a tall order, think through what a gray zone was. And uh, that is what we inherited. I am not overly optimistic with the future as it relates to counterterrorism, but I, we can explore that a little bit. I want you to know what day one was like at the White House, and if there's time and you permit me, I will tell you the, um, the import of that 1878 portrait of uh, the Battle of Tripoli, and I'll share why that, that print was so important to me. But suffice to say, I want you to know that on day one, I inherited four problems. When I say I, I'm referring to a team 
about 14, 15 people from the entire intelligence community for all intents and purposes, professionals all working for me at the National Security Council, working on counterterrorism and hostage issues. I inherited that team and we faced, on day one, we had to make a decision that first week. I had to tee it up to the president through the National Security Advisor, that was then General Michael Flynn, on whether we conduct a raid against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or not. I recommended that we executed that raid. We lost U.S. forces. I know the individual that was killed on the objective, Ryan Owens. I didn't know that until after the execution, obviously, of the operation and as, as reports started flowing to the White House. That said, that was on day one. We inherited the decision on week one we pressed on it because of the, I think we, there we go, because of the weather, because of the, the weather cycle and, and the moon cycle, I should say, the, the uh, lunar cycle. Secondly, we focused on a persistent threat to commercial aviation. Does everybody remember the laptop ban, right? That was a serious, persistent threat to commercial aviation. That's as far as I could go. I wish every American was a fly on the wall as we work through the first crisis that nobody talks about for the first 45 days of the administration. I thought it was normal for me to interact with every principal you know, from the entire national security structure. General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, you pick them. Pompeo at CIA. I thought it was normal. It wasn't normal. This was a significant crisis and we worked through that. The third, we had to accelerate the campaign against ISIS and we did that accordingly. And fourth, and certainly not least important, I want you to know that we focused on hostages and we can come back to that. We had hostages in Africa, we had hostages in the Middle East, we had hostages in Syria in particular, we needed to bring home, we had hostages in Iran and hostages in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We had to bring them home. We had to resolve those cases. If they were held by terrorists or a country didn't acknowledge holding them, like Syria, then our job was to bring them home. That was on day one. I want to demystify, and I am sure everyone here is well aware of the National Security Council, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to frame and simplify what it was we did in the Counterterrorism Directorate. In short, we teed up decisions for the president to make on counterterrorism, like the decision to conduct the raid against Al-Qaeda in Arabian Peninsula, where we lost operator. Uh, we were broken down in functional and geographic teams. I just want to tick off sort of our portfolio, and then we can move on. In short, we focused on defending America, the homeland, from a terrorist attack, right? That went right back the connective tissue to 9-11, or before that, we were to protect the nation from a terrorist attack. Secondly, we had to protect American interests overseas. Think about what just happened in Baghdad. That would have been the counterterrorism directorate, very much focused on the actionable <laughs> intelligence. What is happening? How, how is that intelligence being disseminated? Thirdly, or secondly, we would have focused on on defeating ISIS, that was our second priority. Thirdly, we would have focused on Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, other terrorist organizations. And the other areas I want to talk about relate to some functional 
areas that might be of interest to people in this room, such as countering violent extremism, which is a term of art that is not in vogue right now. So I would say counter-radicalization. It's an important subject, counter-radicalization, foreign fighter flow. What do we do with detainees? We'll come back to that because that's a significant and an important problem we should talk about. And um, we also focused on getting terrorists off the internet, which is related to countering radicalization. And last, as I already mentioned, we focused very deliberately on hostages. I, I want you to know just one little vignette. My, my predecessor said to me, Jenny Easterly, and I think she did an extraordinary job under, again, different administration, didn't matter. I talked to you about that arc of continuity, right? The one thing Jen said to me in our very, very brief and surprising, perhaps, uh, uh, interaction before I took the reins, I listened to her for about four hours and that was it. I had a few questions, but I wanted to listen. And she said, Chris, you have the most important job in Washington, D.C. And I thought that was a bit hyperbolic, right? There are a lot of important jobs in D.C. The first week when I sat on our first video teleconference where we listened to the threat streams worldwide against our interests, uh, keep in mind what I said about commercial aviation, and I realized if it's not the most important job in Washington, D.C., it's one of the most important jobs. But we had a whole intelligence community and an entire enterprise to focus on the threat. All right. What I want to do is cut quickly into what is my bottom line. This is coming out of the White House on reflection. These are some of my key takeaways, right? These are the things that I learned from the White House experience. I didn't adjust these a whole lot. I want to share my reflections with you. First of all, the key lesson is by, with, and through works. That is almost cliche, but the very nature of working with foreign partners is absolutely crucial. Like who? Like the Syrian Democratic Forces. Small footprint of foreign partners. Not a big troop deployment. First lesson. The second lesson, what I just described to you, and I don't want to sound like a cheerleader, and if I do, I apologize, but this enterprise of professionals that work for everybody in this room, not including our foreign partners, that enterprise in total is an extraordinary enterprise, and it shouldn't be adjusted, it shouldn't be minimized going forward. And I don't think it will be, but the enterprise, in short, works. Not just the U.S. enterprise, but I'll probably put it differently from the way I just stated it, but working in tandem with our foreign partners, focused on the threat. Leave it alone. That was my lesson as I left the White House. And thirdly, CT pressure works. If anyone wonders what CT pressure is, and I'll make myself a little vulnerable, it really equates to direct action. You saw it with Soleimani. In short, I would love to tell you that we focused on social fabric issues. We just didn't because of our priorities. Think of the framing of this. We were dealing with an ISIS fight where ISIS controlled the, the terrain consistent with Great Britain, right? We had to take that away from our adversaries. We had to take away the physical uh, caliphate. I walked into the White House wanting to focus 
on some social fabric issues, wanting to focus on counter-radicalization. And if you call me out on that on questions and answers, I'll demonstrate how personal that is to me. But that was not going to be my highest priority in the first year at the White House. It was going to be the focus on direct action to make sure we took away the physical caliphate. And CT pressure does, in fact, work. And as I stated up there, we didn't do enough work. That's my admission to you on counter-radicalization. So this is really important. We had to start recognizing that counterterrorism is a discrete operation, but it's, it's part of a broader fight. And this gets to that gray zone. Now consider what's happened in the last few months on the ground in Syria. What's happening in Iraq? Is there a battle for influence in the future? Are there questions for what's going to happen in the Middle East? All of these things are playing out. And I think it's part of a broader, broader fight. And I want you to know that it, it took me spending a year working seven days a week to finally recognize CT is a surgical capability for the nation, but it's part of a much more uh, broader fight, if you will. We had to stop. This is what I said uh, very diplomatically as I left. We have to stop talking about leaving Iraq flash forward to where we are. We can come back to that. But there's a problem with leaving Iraq lock, stock, and barrel. This seems very circular right now. And we have to continue to build those partnerships. Syrian Democratic Forces. You saw the headlines. Some of them are sensationalized. The idea of Kurds being betrayed, etc., etc. We have to continue the connective tissue with our foreign partners meeting clandestinely, as well as we have to have a continued relationship with them, particularly if we leave the battle space. We learned that in Afghanistan, post our involvement, I'm talking about after the Mujahideen, when we left, there was a civil war. CIA, fortunately, kept relationships up with Northern Alliance, Massoud. We could go on and on with vignettes. It is critical to, to maintain relationships with foreign partners, foreign partners that trust us, and that's important. And small footprint of soft, I made that point. This is what I worry about. I won't belabor the point, we'll come back to that. Okay, I'm gonna pause there for a second. In this audience, I was gonna uh, hide this slide. This is where I would spend time talking to people in the intelligence community about the leadership lessons I learned and how I applied everything I learned in 33 years when I rolled into the White House. I am not going to talk about that here, but we can come back to that because I think that in the end, first of all, most of you people in here didn't know me until you came here today. So certainly no one knew me while I was at the White House. And I am absolutely convinced that the legacy of the people that work at the NSC is more about the relationships you build, the leadership impact that you have on the people that are going to grow to be future leaders. Because nobody's going to say, geez, Chris, you were that guy that worked on the direct action policy every day for a year. Even though it's classified and you can't talk about it, we know you were that guy. No one cares, right? But leadership does matter. And I would love to come back to this if there's time. I handled Charlottesville, meaning defining what that was to our national leadership. It wasn't an act of terrorism. We can debate all day what domestic terrorism was, but the legislative pieces and clarity weren't in place. 
That's not to say that I didn't believe that acts of religiously inspired in, uh, violence are not crucial. And I am happy to say, as a result of not just Charlottesville, but the work of people after I left, there is much more precision in our strategy on counterterrorism that covers down on domestic terrorism. What's a little more nebulous, we focus more on hate. And I think we're in a good place. The words are right. The framing is completely appropriate. The question is what happens on implementation. And that's where the people in this room hold everyone accountable to the national strategy that you can read what domestic terrorism is and what, what counterterrorism practitioners say we're going to do about it. It's the president's strategy. Um, I already talked a little bit about direct action. Suffice to say, I make the point again, we did have a very, very practical policy process that is deliberately opaque. We didn't, we didn't telegraph what we're doing on direct action, and uh, that'll be up to historians to determine how effective it is, but I will tell you, we streamlined it, we made it more opaque, and I think it's very effective. We delivered what the intelligence community and, and what the warfighters need for direct action. I'll leave it at that. This is in the aftermath of a really successful operation. I told you I, I wanted to talk about hostages. It's near and dear to me, and I can now do it without getting choked up, so I will try to do it without pausing. Uh, this is very rewarding. I will tell you that uh, as a past case officer, as an intelligence officer, as somebody that studied the history of the, the National Security Council in this business, I rolled into the White House and I really think, thought at the time I needed to be a little detached from the families that wanted to bring their loved ones home. There, there's hostage fusion cell at the FBI, an interagency body that was formed up after our failures, our complete, everyone agrees, failures to deliver to families previously. President Obama reversed that with the presidential directive that we studied and we continued. Continuity again. But the point was, we wanted to focus on bringing home hostages and that enterprise uh, was responsible to engage also with families. And I did engage with families something I didn't expect to do, but it's very personal. We had to make sure before policy decisions were made that the family understood everything we could tell them to the extent possible, to include taking the most sensitive intelligence that we had and go through a very, very intense um, process to make sure we could share pieces of that intelligence with families. We've come a long way, and this is us I don't know if you can see it, I'm standing in front of the president's desk along with my team and we're telling the president the details of how we recovered, the nation recovered Caitlin Coleman and her three children. The Pakistanis did a rescue. Someday somebody will tell the rest of that story. I won't. I will tell you that Caitlin, I don't think she would mind me telling you this, she was at the spy museum with my wife and I on the roof last week with the kids and we were absolutely exhausted running around with four kids and uh, showing them the spy museum we want to get them young right and it was an extraordinary experience because caitlin is recovering from a severely traumatic experience also on saturday i was with kevin king uh, much to my surprise kevin reached out to me he was just swapped for anas and a couple other 
uh, Akani and uh, Taliban actors. It was a swap. King was held by the Taliban for three years. We worked that case night and day. It turned into a swap. It could have gone very differently. It didn't, but we never gave up, and I had a chance to meet and spend some time with Kevin. Um, just gives you a flavor of the hostage work. I'll be brief on this. I love this story because I love the closure of a bad actor that was involved with Benghazi. He wasn't an al-Qaeda terrorist, but he was involved with Benghazi. We knew it. And the long arm of American law, in this case, an operation took place overseas, somewhere on the uh, northern coast of Africa. He was rolled up, put on a vessel, flown, came back to the United States, went to trial, pled guilty, went to jail. And this is how justice is served. I want to advertise a little bit. When we say we and we talk about direct action, it's obviously the intelligence communities out there taking the risks. I understand that. Um, but I will tell you, none of this would have happened without being driven by policymakers in the White House, meaning my staff finding an opportunity to push this. Otherwise, it just would have fallen on the cutting room floor. We had too many other things to do, but we recognized the importance of driving this, making sure the leaders made decisions to execute this operation. It got lost in the news cycle, but I think this is what America does. This is what our foreign partners do. We brought justice, I think, uh, to families of those who lost people in Benghazi. And none of that's a political statement. It's just... I think, factual. Um, just a word on this. One of my bad days at the White House, remember the mass shooting in Las Vegas? No terrorism nexus at all, but I picked a fight with somebody and I shouldn't have picked a fight with someone that's uncharacteristic, but sleep deprived, frustrated, that none of my resources, none of the resources that I had of the big United States government could do anything once we determined what my resources for focusing on counterterrorism, were involved actively in this space. It was the space of defense, or I'm sorry, Homeland Security, FBI, but this was a, a lone actor that targeted violence on a mass scope and scale that was unprecedented in the United States. And I picked a fight with somebody because I said, what are you going to do about it? Because we weren't using our, our tools effectively, and I was really frustrated because I had these incredible capabilities, and none of it was applied to Las Vegas at all. Now, I want you to know, again, I'm flashing forward to some good news. There was some learning in this administration on that, and Homeland Security just published a strategy that focused very much on targeted violence, to understand this kind of problem and focus more on not just the reasons, but how are we working on this. The community is working on this. And this goes in tandem with some of the arguments on domestic terrorism or school violence. That's built into the strategy. And for the, those of you here that I think it's strategy, that doesn't mean anything to me. Again, the proof is in the implementation, and we have to hold the government accountable on that. And I am confident that Homeland Security and FBI and local authorities are working in tandem on these kinds of problems. It doesn't mean they're going to stop. And then at the end of the month, this problem was bookend, ended with Sapoff, right? Lone actor, Uzbek, operated, wanted to kill babies in baby carriages on Halloween on a bike path. That was his objective, right? How do you prevent this? That's a whole other discussion. 
We failed collectively. So a bit of a postscript. So all of the words, right, the alphabet soup, some of the things I've covered, all of that resulted in 2018 with a very cogent national counterterrorism strategy. And I encourage you to read it. And I'm very proud. I was gone. I take no credit for that. The first year of the administration, I think we framed the problem. We operationalized and tested things on the battlefield relating to counterterrorism. But the arguments were framed, and in year two, the counterterrorism strategy was published. And I was very, very pleased. And I went on record. I spoke about it. I did podcasts about it. I couldn't be more happy because all of the issues I was concerned with were covered in our national counterterrorism strategy. I think people in this room, some were involved with that process. You should be really proud of that, but still hold everyone accountable. All right, uh, so a postscript, a couple more slides, and then we'll wrap up, and I'll take any questions you have. I wasn't happy seeing forces, the idea of precipitous withdrawal out of Syria. I published, and this doesn't happen to Chris Costa every day, but I got an editorial published in the New York Times with Josh Geltzer. It uh, got published and got everybody's attention. It was very balanced, it was neutral, but we expressed concerns because the fight wasn't over. And uh, we stressed the importance of going the distance, right? Continuing putting pressure on ISIS. That was a year ago this past December. Another problem we can come back to, one of the greatest problems we have to contend with, the future problem, is the 70,000 detainees, children and women in Al-Hal, if I said that right, being held in a detention camp, radicalizing, no disposition. That is a future problem. And by the way, that is not a United States problem. Every foreign partner that came to see me, I politely said, when are you going to take back your detainees? Why are you going to wash your hands of your problem, of your foreign fighters? You're going to take away their citizenship? That's inconsistent with what the UN said we wanted to do. We don't want to create stateless persons, a problem we're going to have to contend with. Another problem, and I can personalize this too in questions and answers, I just want you to be aware of some 400 Americans, jihadists, have, have gone to jail, and some, what's the number there, I don't know, some 61 co convicts, right, are going to be getting out of jail. And then they're in the federal parole system. They're American citizens that get to stay here. We have to pay attention to not just normal recidivism, but are the probation authorities, do they have the right tools to engage with radicalized individuals or de-radicalizing those individuals. These are issues that I feel very strongly about and I, I do want to tell you that my opinion on this for what it's worth is this is not purely a government responsibility. The private sector already is, not NGOs, are picking up a lot of the slack in there in this space. And again, I can personalize this a little bit. And that's uh, weeks in King, I already spoke about our, austere, our Australian friend on the right and on, on the left, your, your, uh, your left is uh, Mr. King, Kevin King. I'm not going to belabor the point, you know what happened with al-Baghdadi 
that also demonstrates we can conduct offshore operations without a big footprint in, in Syria. It's tougher, it's harder, there's a longer line of communication, right? But we can conduct offshore operations without a big footprint. That was a tremendous undertaking and we should be proud of U.S. Special Operations Forces. Remember the Syrian Democratic Forces, if you believe reporting, provided the intelligence that supported some of that operation. A large part of it was from human intelligence, my understanding from what I've read in the media, open source. And then, of course, we can talk about Soleimani, if you would like. Um, I've got some strong feelings about that, and I spent about 45 hard minutes with uh, Michael Isakoff on a podcast talking about that, and I think holding my ground and representing what I believe is, is uh, a sound argument for why that operation took place. In, in closing, people like me are often told that I run around and my peers and counterparts and we say, if you don't give us the resources we want, then there's going to be another 9-11 and we're going to hold you accountable. And there are people that say, that's a terrorist trap, that's unfair. You're forcing us into uh, making irrational recommendations on resources and equipment for the counterterrorism fight. And here's what I argue. Counterterrorism pressure works. The enterprise works. We have to be consistent. And our rationale is the fact that we have prevented an attack on the scale of 9-11. That didn't happen by accident. It happened with foreign partners working in tandem with us. It happened with our capabilities. It happened with our learning. And we made lots of mistakes along the way. So what I tell my peers is counterterrorism will remain a currency. And for all those folks that I worked with that said, hey, this is not a counterterrorism problem. We're going to talk about Iran today. Um, you're not invited to the meeting. When I stuck my foot in the door and I said, if you talk about Iran, you've got to talk about counterterrorism. And again, counterterrorism comes back over and over again because sadly it is a currency. Every foreign partner I talk to, even in meetings about just currency inflation, they would want to talk about counterterrorism activities and threat streams. Virtually no country in the world uh, is, is not aware of their vulnerabilities. All right, I went a little bit over, but I really appreciate this forum and I really appreciate the opportunity to answer your questions. So please uh, hit me up on any questions, and to the extent that I can, I will answer your questions. <coughs> Anyone? Well, thank you very much. I have a question, but I'm saving it for the very end. You're saving it for the end? Yes, ma'am. Uh, what was the podcast called that you talked about just a little bit ago? It was on skullduggery, which I wouldn't have associated with me and, until I went to the spy museum. And it was Yahoo News, and it was Michael Isakoff, and it was something about spies and assassins. And, of course, I took issue with the very characterization, and that's how the opening sentence started, and this is how back and forth began. But I really appreciate, uh, I, I, candidly, I haven't been burned or, or troubled by our media like some people. I think it has a, and, and I'm talking about many of my peers, right? I just think it's important to uh, 
make yourself vulnerable and go to different outlets. And I thought it was important to go to an outlet that I knew wouldn't be talking about James Bond with me. And I, I think it's a good opportunity to, to hear some candid back and forth. And I, I, I swept through my T-shirt, but don't tell Michael Lissikoff that. Right? <laughs> Man. Would you elaborate on Sarah's comment about the Bond being Right. Okay, that's a tough question. I, I like that question. I've been thinking a lot about it. And uh, here's the bottom line. The question was the relationship with the Kurds going forward. How do you maintain trust? Here's a sad piece of history. The Kurds have been burned over and over again. They are a resilient population. They even seem very sober in the immediate aftermath of what happened when U.S. forces started leaving. Yeah, kids threw some stones at U.S. forces and there were harsh words, but there is a pragmatism from the Kurds. They know, I think, that it might not be in the next year, but we will work again with the Kurds. So they are resilient. And I think there's space to connect with them. And to some extent, I don't really know the details now, but I know where we're talking to the Kurds, or I surmise that we are. I think the Kurds understand that there were decision, political, pragmatic, real, uh, kind of a realism uh, approach to foreign policy, and I think the Kurds are resilient. At the same time, remember, the Kurds understand that they have some problems too, right? Terrorists are wrapped into the very you know, rubric of Syrian democratic forces, and they still have a Marxist ideology and are killing Turks, which are NATO partners. So it is an extremely complex dynamic. That said, that connected tissue, those relationships, I believe have been forged in earnest since 1991. And I talk about that in the podcast. It's emotional to me because I was with Kurds on the ground in 1991 when an unintended signal was sent by H.W. Bush, and he said in the immediate aftermath of the first Gulf War, he said what? He said, rise up and fight, we'll support you. Unintended signals. She is in the South. Kurds, fight Saddam. We've taken away his teeth. We didn't. And there were some loopholes. He used his helicopters. He used chemical weapons. I saw the result of that on the ground in Iraq, northern Iraq, as well as in southeastern Turkey, because there was a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions, truly. We went back post-first Gulf War. We saved Kurds. We put Band-Aids on them. And I don't mean to be trite about it or, or flippant, but we, we sent them back into northern Iraq and we protected them. And that stasis lasted all the way up through the second Gulf War. Um, and then after that, we had the relationships established. I think that there will be relationships between our intelligence community and Kurdish partners and certainly our special operations that will be done. They, they know how to communicate to each other. I just think it's going to take some time. And I don't like the word chaos, and that's not what I see. I see a very uncertain dynamic still playing out. So I can't tell you exactly how it's going to look. But I do say it will be harder if we have less of a footprint on the ground. Sir? I'd like uh, your perception on airline uh, in Turkey, a NATO ally, and yet with significant... Uh, 
uh, shall we say, uh, divergence there from the past relationship we have had and the uh, what is inherent within the personality and the objectives of the uh, current leadership in Turkey. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear Yeah, that's fair. Insights. That's a fair question. I, I will be inadequate to that question. I won't go as deep as you would like for the sake of time. But I will tell you, Erdogan truly is a realist, right? And uh, he got what he wanted exactly. He got essentially a, a buffer zone, I think, between North Syria and Turkey. That's, it's very, again, it goes a little bit back to 91. When we, when we pushed the Kurds from Turkey back into Northern Iraq, there was a safe zone established. Not widely known, but we could have easily come to blows with our Turkish allies. Why? Because there were special operators, U.S. special operators on the ground, helping children, women, and the population, feeding them. That same dynamic, to a lesser extent, is playing out. And it's, it's, it's a problem, right? Because Kurds were just our allies. And now you have the Turks taking care of Turkey. They have always, always focused on their national interests first, albeit a NATO partner. And therein lies the problem, and it was General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, that was trying to balance that so, so difficultly, if, if that's the appropriate word, with, with great difficulty trying to balance that, because they were an important NATO partner. And they weren't happy that we were arming Kurds. We made the decision early on in the administration to arm the Kurds for the pragmatic reasons of going after ISIS. Um, so I would just tell you that he is a realist. He's someone that we have to contend with. He is a NATO partner. He's working against the U.S. interests and other partners in Libya. So uh, in places like Libya where there's a, a, a bit of a, not a civil war, but certainly what could turn into a civil war. So they're going to be a bit of a spoiler to a far lesser degree than, than Russia. So this is a diplomatic problem long-term, not a military problem. But I just laid out the challenges. I wish I had the solutions for you, right? Uh, sir. The, uh, you just mentioned Libya. What, what do you see as um, the end game there? And I keep seeing in the, the media, they don't mention what side we're on. Are we on the, um, the general side or are we on the, uh, the UN approved government side. No, I, I think the media talks about us being more aligned with Haftar right now uh, versus Siraj, who the Turks are aligned with, and the Russians. That's the UN the, sponsored one. I forget which one, the LRA, and I can't keep the acronyms right, but Siraj is, is sort of the UN sanctioned government. Haftar is a guy that grew up near here or yeah. was raised near here, and the bottom line is they're contending for power in a post- Gaddafi, Libya. My equity wasn't the big policy things, which is why I'm, I'm light on Libya. I was very much focused on making sure that when ISIS consolidated, that we made sure, again, direct action was aligned against them uh, and, the right, and the right actions were taken against them, just like our predecessors in the Obama, Obama administration. You remember maybe prior to uh, Inauguration Day, um, some ISIS, I think it was with great fanfare, they executed people on a beach, I think in Sir, 
um, as I recall. But the bottom line is then there were strikes that took place. Um, and then we came on board and then we, we owned the problem. So uh, I think it is very, uh, it is public. Uh, I know it is because I, I reviewed, reviewed an article about who's aligned with who and it's very complex. The bottom line is what we want is warring factions to come together and form one government and that there isn't a civil war down the line. It's a very intractable problem. Jim. Chris. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast, but in the interim, I would be interested in your uh, comments on uh, the killing of Soleimani. And I don't know if you can answer this or not, but you know, there have been the reports that Obama and W did not go after him because of fears of repercussions or anything to that. So I've heard the same reporting and people have told me that I can't verify it one way or the other. I really can't. But I will say that I think Suleimani was absolutely a proportionate strike. And no matter how we define the very subjective self-defense and imminence, I think uh, clearly there's evidence that that Suleimani was targetable. It's we can. Uh, question the calculus for why now. As far as I'm concerned, it was a righteous strike. He uh, maimed many Americans in southern Iraq. I uh, was a commander of a task force. I didn't lose any of my folks, thankfully. I did have sources that were rolled up by uh, Iranian Iranian surrogates, and uh, they were uh, probably killed um, brutally in southern Iraq, and Soleimani had his fingerprints on all that. Remember, Soleimani is, was the leader of IRGC Quds Force, which is a proxy force. He's a little bit the JSOC, Joint Special Operations Commander, a little bit Special Operations Command, and he was a little bit CIA director. He was a paramilitary leader that sowed havoc throughout the region, and I'm not exaggerating. In places like Yemen, he was a proxy leader places like Iraq. What was he doing in Iraq? We had just had our embassy attack, which is the United States, right, for all intents and purposes. We just had an American killed, and he is with a PMF leader, an Iraqi militia member. People say, again, listen to the podcast. I was put, you know, I was put on the, uh, on the X, and I really appreciate the opportunity, just like I do now, to tell you I feel very confident that it was a good operation. The question of why now will bear out over time. And we will see. The optimist side of me says it is quite possible that the Iranians will come back to the table. And finally, deterrence for counterterrorism and regime activity might be working against Iran. For 40 years, we have been beholden to 1979. I remember listening to the operation and listening, just like I was on a podcast, I listened to these two guys in Massachusetts as a kid trying to get my head around what just happened in 1979, then during a failed rescue attempt in 1980. Something is not working. So the fact that we've just shaken things up, you can challenge the wisdom 
anyone can, of foreign policy decisions. But I take a longer view. I see the opportunities to get the Iranians back to the table. They're still holding information and on our hostages. Bob Levinson. I will do a podcast at the end of the month with Jason Rezaian. What country arrests and jails journalists for years just to be a negotiation hedge for the Iran agreement a few years ago, Jason resigned. What kind of country denies a family their husband and father? Iran. And I did not go into the administration, an outspoken Iranian hawk, on the contrary. No one knew what my, pers my perspectives were, and I still don't share those perspectives other than through a counterterrorism lens. I just feel really confident that that strike was a good strike. And there's no doubt other folks looked at striking Soleimani in the past. I did not focus on Soleimani. Back to what I focused on on Inauguration Day, we were very much focused on the threat to commercial aviation in taking away ISIS. I want you to reflect back on not only the raid that took place that first week, but if you remember, nonstop, there were attacks from England to the Philippines. It was mind-boggling. This is in the new administration. Every one of those attacks caused us to engage with our foreign partners in a different time zone to look for the tissue that connected perhaps with an ongoing threat in the United States, to make sure the Joint Terrorism Task Forces through, through the FBI were, were, were tracking possible threats. Just like the FBI is doing in the aftermath of the attack against Soleimani with regard to, with regard to uh, Hezbollah and other proxies. So Jim, thanks for the question. I went a little longer than I thought. Sir. Uh, sir, you mentioned the importance of our partners, yeah. and I'm glad to hear that. Uh, based on your experience, what sort of four, five, six of the foreign sovereign states you worked with were the best partners in our CT efforts overseas? There's a long list, longer than, so I would say I work closely with Five Eyes, the Five Eye partners, on a day in and day out, day in and day out basis, particularly at the White House, right? Those formal relationships, they work. Every time there was an attack in England, sometimes they were, happened to be in my office when an attack occurred, literally with the Brits one time. And the Australians with the, I don't know how much I can say about that, but there was a, a, a whole bunch of, um, events that played out on the ground in Australia, and uh, we work closely with the Australians. But I will tell you, working with Iraqi partners, working with Afghans in those fights, those were the best times I had as an operations officer, running operations, working with, you pick the foreign partner. That was the best time that I had, and building a relationship with an Afghan and, and, and building a sincere and lasting relationship. And... Uh, even with terrorists that have been to jail when they get out after they serve their time, I've maintained contact with some of them um, because I continue to learn, kind of dissect the thought process for radicalization. So partners come in all forms and shapes, and I don't just rely on, on our standard partners. Um, geez, the list goes on and on. I could talk about uh, you know, non-traditional partners in the counterterrorism space, like... Uh, 
Jeez, uh, are the Malaysians great partners? Uh, great partners, and that came a little bit late. Um, and of course, I mentioned the Five Eyes. Did I address your question? Probably yes, only sir. partially. I'm surprised on Malaysia. Uh, frequently, analysts and the State Department's annual reports mention them as a kind of transit country, pass-through country, uh, where we find more problems almost than help. Right. On the other hand, they did help snatch the famous logistician from the right. TTV Tigers after '09. You are exactly right to suggest that they were tough partners. They've come a long way, and I saw that develop in a short period of time. Um, Malaysia became a hub, a transit point. They stopped going to Indonesia and showed up in Malaysia on their way to the Philippines, and the Malaysians really got at those problems. I'll tell you, uh, counterterrorism partners come in all shapes and sizes, as I said. Another example, I belie my ethnicity, but at, at the risk of uh, being a little biased, I will tell you I'm an uh, Albanian-American. There are some great counterterrorism partners. They punch well above their weight, and I'll give you an example to reinforce that. They took back the MEK. The MEK is a dissident group that was once terrorists when I was on the ground in Iraq. They're no longer on a terrorist list, but they're a problem to Iran, and Albania took them back. The problem with that is Albania then became a target for Iran, and Iran, according to open source reporting last December, I think, they, uh, they were planning to act against Albania interests on the ground in Albania, because there's a price for working with America. And as late as last week, Iran was saying that little country is the den of evil, Albania, and they're harboring MEK. They are extremely vulnerable, and we, you know, we should do something about that. But that was a diplomatic solution to a significant problem. But the Albanians are an example of a, a nation that worked very closely with the United States and other partners. Thanks for the question. Uh, Ma'am, I was going to ask. Oh, my favorite subject. That's an easy one to talk about. Yeah, recently there's been in the news that the museum is revamping some mortuaries of it, which currently features the architects of the Fiai Right. And and as you know, the United States prosecuted Japanese officers who recently attacked and stood after World War II. Yes. So I was really wondering if the new revamped a lot of ex-military officials views that um, torture isn't effective, immoral, unlawful, um, or are school children slowing to see that you know a lot of these tactics are um, whether they'll still be te teaching the school children that these torture programs are effective. Great question, and that's a tough question, but I welcome answering it. First of all. Uh, the interrogation exhibit is an interrogation exhibit. It's about one or two percent of the entire museum, right? Two floors that talk about everything from human intelligence to analysis to covert action. And our staff decided to take on a controversial issue. So we took on interrogation 
holistically. It is not like some of the articles that you read. It makes excellent headlines to sell newspapers and get people to click and call it a torture exhibit. It is unhesitatingly, I will tell you, it is about interrogation. It is not a torture exhibit. And what we're going to do is make some adjustments that we based on feedback, thought were important to make, to balance out the story. But what we want to do, what am I talking about? Enhanced interrogation is a case study that we thought in our staff, I think, morally and, and, and uh, you know, with the ethos of good museum curators, they decided to tackle that tough subject and talk about EI enhanced interrogation and waterboarding as a footnote in history, as a case study, as a post 9-11 dynamic, and to contextualize it as a post 9-11 activity that took place. We can't run away from the fact that there was an enhanced interrogation program. So what we want to do is balance the story and we want to talk about non-coercive methods. Just to clarify, um, you're saying waterboarding No, I, I didn't say that. If I did, that I'm, I misunderstood. I said that waterboarding was, I don't think I said. Could you just yeah. say, yeah. could you go back and just reiterate? I'm like writing notes and listening. Okay. So waterboarding was a part, without question, of enhanced interrogation, right? It was a part of the program that was publicized. The SSCI wrote a 500-page summary. There was a counter to that. The, there was a, a uh, the other side of the aisle. The Republicans wrote a counter to that. The CIA wrote a rebuttal. Waterboarding happened. So we contextualize that by also talking about other periods of history where waterboarding happened. And it happened with the Japanese, as you rightly said. There, uh, it, it's happened uh, in Cambodia, in other places, we decided you couldn't talk about interrogation without talking about torture in the scope of interrogation throughout history. But we don't make any moral judgments. We want people to come to the museum. We want them to listen to stories from both sides of the spectrum, former CIA officers, uh, people from humanitarian organizations, offering their points of view, former military that that talks about waterboarding and their perspectives. We lay all of that out. There is, in that very small section in the museum, there is a warning for children. But there were some articles that suggest that children shouldn't go to the museum because of this. That is sensationalized, that's inappropriate, and it's wrong. It's disingenuous, I could go on and on. And it's unfair to the teachers that love the International Spy Museum. They'll continue to love it. We have over 75 interactives. Our mission is to educate the public like this, but also uh, to do it with children, to animate them using espionage and intelligence as a vehicle. And uh, I think we do that really well. So come to the Spy Museum in March when we've made some adjustments to make the story a little broader because we've taken feedback from the community. Um, I also talk about that in the podcast, similar to what I just articulated. Um, so 
you'll have an opportunity to, to judge based on that feedback. But thanks for the question. But understand some of the reporting has been completely inaccurate and uh, it's, it's disappointing uh, because it's sensationalized. Remember, there's all kinds of viewpoints and I'll leave you with this. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, when there was an EI, an enhanced interrogation program, whatever you think of that program, that was not a CIA program. It was America's program. We owned that as a nation. That was, that was a program that we owned, and we have decided to talk about that as a case study. But it's such a small piece of interrogation history in the scope of time, um, but we still nonetheless decided to tackle it. Sir, tell me if we have to stop, too. Uh, we have one more question. Sir. When you were speaking of Oh. Actually, you said you wanted to take the final question. Please. Go ahead. We can do two questions. Two questions. <laughs> I love the flexibility. That question's super short. So. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you were speaking about the Right. regards to continuing uh, foreign partnerships. Now, I was curious as to your opinion on potential intersections or existing intersections between uh, the Department of State's conflict and uh, stabilization operations and uh, traditional counterterrorism So it's a little bit out of my lane, but I won't, I, I won't bail on that question. I think it's an important question. The bottom line is in the aftermath of, of counterterrorism operations, stabilization must follow, there must be counter-radicalization programs, that is in many cases state-led, and our partners in state, state have done a tremendous job with the resources that they have, working with foreign partners. We had as many as, I don't know, I think 73 coalition partners involved with the counterterrorism fight, some supported stabilization activities. I don't know where we are right now. Uh, on stabilization, but stabilization must follow, or else what do we have? This cycle repeats itself. I will tell you that uh, I would encourage you to read a friend of mine's article that I think is very thought-provoking, and I won't tell you I'm aligned with every point that he makes, but Ali Soufan, who has strong feelings about interrogation, by the way, non-coercive versus coercive, which we want to talk about in the museum, um, Ali Safan just published an article, an op-ed, and talking about the possibility of ISIS taking advantage of, of, of the turbulence in the Middle East and quietly waiting. And it follows that without stabilization, the, pop, the population's going to do what? They're going to seek other partners to defend them. They're going to they're radicalize. They're going to counter Iranian proxy groups if they're Sunnis. So it is a tough, intractable problem. But I really uh, believe emphatically that our State Department has done an extraordinary job with the resources that they have. That's a whole lot of question. Aaron? Okay, so back to leadership. Your real first day in the White House. The story you've, you've told in the past, I think it says a lot about leadership and it says a lot about the Chris Costa that some of us know. When you first went to the White House and you were asked to do some errands. Could right. you tell that story really quick? We will. Uh, we'll leave on a, uh, on a light note. And it's, it's a key leadership point I, I love to share. And it, it goes like this. I was on the presidential t 
transition team in all my glory. I, I showed up there. General Flynn knew my reputation. He knew my background. He knew my resume. But I, I didn't have to walk around and tell people who I was. I just had to join the team, right? And my whole life, I've been telling people that you've got to do windows. Everybody cleans the latrines, right? Not to be too, uh, you know, uh, pedestrian, right? Um, there I am on the transition team. No one knew me. I didn't have a login yet. I was paying out of pocket, living in a hotel with my wife, having no idea, you know, what was going to happen, if how I was going to pay my rent in two places, if we couldn't sell our place. Were they really going to select me to be the special assistant to the president? And uh, this guy, young guy, uh, much younger than me, looked at me and he said, hey, you. Uh, he didn't call me old man, but his tone suggested that's what he was saying. I need you to do something for me. He said, I need you to, I'm going to write a list. I'm going to give you some money. I need you to go pick up coffee and office supplies. And uh, I, I, I paused for a second and I, I kind of leaned in and I took the money. I took the note. And what do you do, right? My mom wasn't available for a phone call. So I immediately called my wife as I left the building and I said, Donna, let's book some flights. I'm not doing this anymore because I came close to, you know, really strangling somebody. And I don't, I don't think I'm the right guy for this. And she coached me a little bit and said, hey, come on, we came a long way. Think about it. Just don't make a rash decision. But anything you, you, uh, you want to do, we will do. I walked on. By the time I got to the coffee place, by the time I got the office supplies, I realized, and this is what I convey to anybody that will listen, my whole adult life in working with special operations, I told people that we do do windows. There are times you, you're the right guy to do the right job, even if it's a nasty job. In that day, I didn't have a login. They didn't know who I was. I couldn't help them write think pieces. I was the guy that could go do coffee and office supplies. And I almost forgot that story. So that's what I remind people. All the tremendous things that followed after that, the spy museum, working at the White House, which was the best job that I ever had, none of that would have ever happened if I didn't go for coffee, right? So that's the lesson that I share to, to young officers and, and people and just remind them, don't, don't make the mistake that I could have made. So thank you very much. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you.